0: Well, what an exciting morning we've had. And the excitement even started before the service started. I mean, wasn't that a wonderful testimony to hear May and the grace of God in her life? Beautiful, and the faithfulness of people to reach out. We just have to be faithful. He never asked us to save anyone. He just asked us to be faithful, to share the good news, and in his time, he will give a person grace and will save them. But even before all that, it was an exciting morning here. I arrived at the church. I met Sean, the property manager who's on duty today in the hallway, and he says, Calvin, we have an incident. And I was like, oh, because I've actually had a thief in the building before when I was in it. So I was like, okay. And he says, it's in your office. And "Uh uh-oh. He said, there's a chipmunk in your office. (laughs) And at first I was like, there's a chipmunk in my office. He says, yeah, the door was open. He came right in. I don't know if he hand sanitized or had a mask on, but he was in my office. And you know what? That little guy was probably in there looking around on my wall and going, why is the duck on the wall? Why is the turkey tail on the wall? Why is there fish on the wall? And it was the easiest removal of a chipmunk we've ever had. As soon as we opened the door, it's like he walked out, he saluted me, and he said, thank you for freeing me from this dungeon of stuff going on in this office. And he literally walked out the back door. He just walked out the hallway, jumped, and off he went. So it's been an exciting morning, and uh, I'm looking forward to sharing God's word with you this morning, and uh, I trust that uh, you will be enriched through his word this morning, and uh, together we will grow as Christ followers. So let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time this morning. Father, thank you for the beautiful privilege you've given us to gather together, to worship you, to remind ourselves of the truth, that our Savior wears the victor's crown. And God, that just gives us such confidence and such hope in the midst of so much uncertainty to know that our future is certain, and we don't have to worry about that. So thank you for allowing us to be here this morning. And now as we open your word, I ask God that you would speak to us, and I pray that you would challenge us. I pray that we would heed the warnings you're going to give us today through your word. pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning I want to talk to you about being duped. Any of you ever been duped before? Being deluded or deceived? Have you found yourself in a situation where you thought you were getting one thing, only to discover later it was not the real thing? Well, if you have, you're not alone. And I remember the first time I got duped, I bought a beautiful carving of an elephant. And it was a pricey carving, because it was made out of ebony wood. Well, when I got home, I realized it was still a beautiful carving but it was made out of cheap wood that had probably 50 layers of black shoe polish all over it that had been buffed to look like ebony. So it didn't take me long to realize when I went to the market to buy carvings, scrape the bottom of what you think ebony wood is, and if the black comes off, it ain't ebony. It's a fake. According to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the shady business of fakes and counterfeit goods has ballooned into, listen to this, a global industry worth 1.2 plus trillion dollars. Despite extensive and often expensive efforts by leading name brands, and you know what I was surprised to discover this week as I did some research? Canada, our nation, lackadaisical attitude toward this problem of counterfeit goods has actually pegged us as the third biggest source of fake goods in the world market. Did you know that? I didn't know that. See, for those who profit off of this industry, their interest is to deceive consumers by presenting their product as the trademark holder by way of a fake logo or a fake tag. And that's why counterfeit and piracy enforcement teams will say, pay close attention. The next time you fork out money for that favorite sports jersey or designer handbag you've been saving up for, Pay close attention, because it could be a fake. You see, the reality, although it's a ballooned global industry right now, the big business of fake and counterfeit is not a new enterprise. In fact, you only have to get to the third chapter of the Bible to find the first recorded instance of counterfeit activity. You'll remember, there we discover the authentic words of God being taken by the first recorded world's first con artist. Satan himself, altered and then remarketed to Adam and Eve as the real thing. And all of us know and all of us live with the negative consequences of mankind being duped. Of all the products peddled in the counterfeit market, there is none more dangerous than this, counterfeit truth. There is none more dangerous than counterfeit truth. In fact, listen to how two authors describe the danger of counterfeit truth. The greatest sin of Christ rejectors and the most destructive work of Satan is misrepresentation of truth and its consequent deception. Secondly, of all the cons to which we might fall prey in this world, the most damaging is the deception of religious phonies. So brothers and sisters, unlike our nation, We as followers of Christ cannot afford to be lackadaisical when it comes to paying close attention to counterfeit truth. And this was the burden that was weighing heavy on Peter's heart and mind when he penned his second letter to the believers scattered throughout Asia Minor. He did not want them to be naive about the counterfeit truth infiltrating their churches being solicited by false teachers. If you have your Bible, I'd ask that you turn to 2 Peter We will be reading from chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and we'll be reading through the first 10 verses. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct, and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is especially true for those who follow the corrupt desires of the flesh and despise authority. May God bless the reading of his word. Last week we saw in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, Peter attached the tag of authenticity to the Scriptures alone as the true authoritative verification of the teachings about the person, the work of Jesus, and the second coming of Christ. So having established the credibility of the prophets and the credibility of the scriptures, he transitions into this next section of his letter by giving the believers three things to remember regarding those who are exactly opposite to the true prophets he has just spoke about in chapter 1, verses 19 to 21, namely false teachers. And the first thing he gives them is a warning, a warning regarding false teachers. And this was the warning. If, it's not if, but when they will show up. And in the first three verses, did you notice how many times Peter uses the word will? Just as there will be false teachers among you, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you. Five times. For our friends to the south, hurricane season always begins on June 1st. And throughout the uh, season, whenever inclement weather is forming, and if you've noticed on the news, just like two storms are posing a potential double threat right now to the Gulf Coast, the National Hurricane Center gives updates every six hours so that people are not caught off guard. And there are graduating levels to the urgency of their communication. For example, a tropical weather outlook is simply a a discussion of significant um, areas of disturbed weather that may or may not potentially grow into something. Then there are storm watches, which elevate the urgency to convey that there's now the danger of impending, life-threatening weather. And finally, there is storm warnings that are issued. Communicating the danger of threatening conditions has arrived and people need to take the appropriate action right now. So using the National Hurricane Center scale, Peter in verses one through three is not giving the believers simply a false teacher outlook. A discussion that potentially there might be false teachers who may want to infiltrate your churches, no. He was giving them a false teacher watch, a warning that impending danger is coming. Counterfeit truth will approach the doorsteps of your churches. There will be false teachers among you. And he says, just as there were false prophets who plagued God's people in the past... We know from the Scriptures, we've read the Old Testament, that there was a huge problem with lying prophets in the Old Testament, and it had raised its ugly head again in Peter's day. And brothers and sisters, it continues to be an ongoing threat in our world even today. But this shouldn't surprise us, because if we consider that from the very beginning, Satan, as we saw and his forces have been in the counterfeit business, always scheming how to infiltrate groups of believers with deceptions delivered by false teachers, masquerading as credible truth-tellers. False teachers, people who claim to speak for God and for the good of others' souls, but in reality teach something that is contrary to the truth of God and very harmful to people's souls. False teachers are dangerous people, don't kid yourself, who appear to be resourceful. They appear to be real, but in reality are empty and deceitful. And as Charles Swindle says, trafficking religious things without authentic faith. If you want to know what false teachers are, they are people who traffic religious things but without authentic faith. Faith. As another author said, they may speak our language, but use a different dictionary. They are dangerous people. Listen to how Paul describes them in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 to 15. They are deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And Matthew warns in chapter 7, verse 15, "'Beware of the false prophets "'who come to you in sheep's clothing, "'but inwardly are ravenous wolves.'" You see, brothers and sisters, their DNA is the same as their leader, who is known as the father of lies and comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. So we cannot afford to be lackadaisical about the ever-present danger of false teachers.'" And to help the believers he was writing to be able to identify these false teachers and guard themselves against their wicked ways. Peter points out in this passage that we just read some characteristics of false teachers that differentiate them from the true teachers who he had established in chapter one verses 19 to 21. And these characteristics, being aware of them, are very helpful to us today in identifying the ongoing threat of false teachers. Firstly, he says, In verse one, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. What Peter is talking about here is not doctrines that are sometimes disputed amongst fellow believers. For example, believers can get together over coffee and discuss their understanding of when the return of Christ may happen. Believers can get together and discuss what is the most biblical methods of evangelism. Believers can even get together over coffee and discuss which spiritual gifts are still in operation in the church today. And we would not consider those different uh, interpretations necessarily as heresy. But what Peter's talking about here when he mentions heresies is something very different than things that Christians amongst themselves feel free to discuss. When he mentions heresies here, he is talking about teachings that absolutely contradict the central biblical doctrines of our faith. What we would call the defining marks of orthodoxy. Issues including the inspiration and inerrancy of scripture, the trinity, the deity of Christ, God and man, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, the work of Christ that he did on our behalf on the cross, the resurrection of Christ and the return of Christ. Peter is warning false teachers will offer up with great cleverness and extremely good skill attractive alternatives to these core essential truths of our faith. Why? To entice unsuspecting people to make a choice. That often seems very appealing, but in reality, Peter's warning the believers he's writing to are very destructive because through their teachings, the second characteristic he points out, they openly deny Christ. He says they deny the sovereign Lord who bought them. A clear reference to their rejection of Christ and his work on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. Although these false teachers had heard the preaching about Christ's salvation, they rejected it. And they replace it with their own ideas about what the redemption of Christ really is. A good hint, a good helpful tip I read this week. A red flag should always go up in our mind when a teacher, listen, is known more for what they deny about Christ's person and work than what they embrace. A false teacher is known more for what they deny about Christ's person and work than what they embrace. And in their denial, these evil teachers that Peter is referring to, in their denial, what they were trafficking was the idea that God no longer intervenes in the world. There is no second coming of Christ. Therefore, there is no final judgment. Meaning, they are accountable to no one. They are accountable to no one but themselves and their own ideas, therefore, they feel free to not only teach whatever they want, but to also live however they want. As I read that this week, I thought, man, that sounds similar to another part of scripture I have heard before. Judges seventeen six. in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. You see, where there is no ultimate authority, immoral chaos will flourish. Where there is no ultimate authority, immoral chaos will flourish. We see that happening in our society today. As God's word is increasingly marginalized, ignored, and even attacked as no longer relevant. So although these false teachers, their heresies included the denial of the virgin birth of Christ, their heresies that they were trafficking, denied the deity of Christ, they denied the bodily resurrection and the second coming, the fundamental error of these false teachers and all false teachers and any unbeliever is they would not submit their lives to the rule of Christ. It's a lordship issue. And the results of anyone who denies Christ, as it says in our passage, is they bring swift destruction on themselves. You see how critical surrendering to the authority of God's word impacts every other area of our lives? People who submit to the lordship of Christ in all areas of their life is an indicator that they are not a counterfeit disciple. And it starts with accepting God's word as truth. That's why we ask the question, you heard it this morning at every baptism, is it your desire with the help of the Holy Spirit to live in accordance to whatever you think is right? No. We ask every candidate, every disciple, is it the desire of your, help, of your heart with the help of the Holy Spirit to live in obedience to the commands of Christ? You see, if Christ is your Savior, He is also your Lord. And denying the lordship of Christ while claiming to be a believer destructively infects others and discredits the gospel. As Peter points out next, the next characteristic, they live according to the desires of their flesh because they have no ultimate authority that they feel accountable to. Peter describes their lifestyles as depraved conduct. The New American Standard Bible refers to their sensuality. A Greek word for blatant immorality. It describes the attitude of a person. Listen to this. The attitude of a person who has lost to shame. Lost to shame. They are past the stage of wishing to conceal or hide their sin and of being ashamed of it. This is what the false teachers Peter is describing We're living like. And this attitude to feel free to indulge in their sinful dire desires without restraint was the key motivator as to why the false teachers felt they had to redefine truth. It was so that they could live how they wanted. Because you see, no one will feel free to live that way if you're living according to God's word. To live with no regard for what is right requires establishing another standard of righteousness. And that's exactly what false teachers do. And you know what's sad? Did you notice in this passage in verse two? Peter acknowledges that many, not a few, not the odd person, not the person who's isolated in their home and is just listening to everybody on the internet. No, many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In Peter's day, as is the case today, non-believers are looking for reasons. You and I know this. Non-believers are always looking for reasons to denounce Christ followers. And the problem was these false teachers, these heretics, were giving the unbelieving world all the ammunition they needed to denounce Christ followers. The false teachers and those who were seduced by their teachings and followed their ways were making it easy to bring shame to the cause of Christ. Brothers and sisters, if we are going to be a unified body of believers who are growing in Christ-likeness and together making disciples, we cannot ever compromise, tweak, or ignore to teach the whole counsel of God and what he says just to accommodate our personal desires. We cannot do that. We have witnessed this in our own day. If you wanna build a big following, just offer a faith that removes the restraints on people's sinful behavior and that will appeal to the base urge of all of us, pleasure and selfishness. So we must, out of love for one another and to protect our witness in the community where we live and where we work, we must as Christ ambassadors help guard one another from cozying up to false teachers whose doctrines and actions actually reveal they deny the God of the Bible, who we love so much. And finally, Peter points out fourth characteristic, their motivation is clearly not the love of truth. In verse three, what is it? It is their love of money. Peter says in their greed these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Exploit is a marketing term. It means to to traffic. It means to trade. So in other words, these teachers, these false teachers, out of their unrestrained love for pleasure and money will traffic fabricated stories, stories intended to deceive. They traffic false words. Interestingly, the word for false from the Greek is plastos, from which we get our modern word plastic. And I don't know if many of you, but I know for me, when I'm up at the farm working and we're cutting the fields and it's 29 degrees and the humidity, it feels like 38. I don't know if you'd agree with me, but there is nothing that tastes better and is more refreshing than a cold Coke or a ginger ale out of a glass bottle, as opposed to a plastic bottle. Amen? Have you ever experienced that? See, we didn't have plastic over in Africa. Everything was in glass bottles. And I came over here, I was like, wow, pop tastes totally different. Peter's warning is false teachers will replace the truth with cheap but convincing imitation in an effort to make it easier for followers to adopt to falsehood instead of truth. Don't be duped. These false teachers appear to be motivated by the love of truth, but they have ulterior motives, their pleasure and their greed. And that is why knowingly exploiting others by deception, taking advantage of people by implying what they are offering is more valuable than it really is. So brothers and sisters, Paul's warning to us, Peter's warning to us is be aware. Don't be naive. False teachers are dangerous. They have an agenda just like their leader to steal, kill, and destroy. Be discerning. Be discerning who you're listening to. Be discerning who you're reading. Know the scriptures. Knowing the scriptures, the truth, is the best way to be able to identify what is false. If you don't know the truth, how are you going to know what is false? And finally, stay in close community with other believers who also are committed to not compromising on the truth. Warning regarding false teachers is not if, it's when. Secondly, he gives them a reminder regarding false teachers in verses the second half of verse three to the end of our passage. Just as he did not want the believers to be naive about the certainty of false teachers among them, he also did not want them to be naive about the certainty of the judgment and condemnation that false teachers will face. You know, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I see false teachers, it gets disheartening to see their effectiveness and how they can draw so many people to follow them. It may have even caused some of you to second guess and wonder, perhaps what they're saying and offering is really true, because why would so many people buy into that? But Peter reminds them, God sees and takes their offensive ways very seriously, even though it may appear for a while that false teachers are gaining momentum. Look at the end of verse three. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. Meaning God's judgment against false teachers set in place from eternity past, carried out on those in the Old Testament, Peter is saying, has not worn out or become ineffective. Remember, that was the fabricated story these teachers were trafficking. God, he no longer intervenes with the world. Christ, he's not coming back. There's no final judgment. To which Peter reminds the believers, there is final judgment coming. God's judgment is still active. It will come to pass, both present and ultimately in the future. So don't be duped. God by nature, the God of truth, and according to his word, you can look it up in Proverbs chapter 19, verse five and nine, and Revelation chapter 21, verse eight. He says in his word that all liars, and all deceivers will not escape. Their destruction is inevitable. And so to support the case that he was building for the believers of the certainty of the destruction and the judgment, both in the present and ultimately in the future, he reminds the believers of three incidents where God dealt with such wickedness in the past. In verse four, as we were reading, he reminds them how God did not spare angels when they sinned but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. He showed them no mercy whatsoever. Jude, speaking about these same angels that Peter's referring to, clarifies for us exactly what their sin was in verse six of Jude. The angels did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling. They rejected God's authority. They left their normal state and therefore became fallen angels. And to emphasize just how serious God views their wickedness, rejecting the authority of God, Peter, carried along by the Holy Spirit, as we learned last week, used a Greek word, Tartarus, to define hell. Greek mythology taught that Tartarus was a place lower than Hades, reserved for the most wicked of human beings, gods and demons. For the Jews, they knew it was the place where fallen angels were sent. It was the lowest hell, the deepest pit, the most terrible place of torture and eternal suffering. And it is here, Peter says that these fallen angels are bound with chains, being held for judgment on the great day. The great day, referring to the final judgment, when all demons and Satan are forever consigned to the lake of fire, prepared for them, and all the ungodly. So the fallen angels. He then reminds them in verse 5 of the infamous historical judgment of the Old Testament. The judgment on all the people of the world in Noah's time through the worldwide flood. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 6 verse through chapter 8. As with the fallen angels, God did not spare the ancient world because of its wickedness. His judgment encompassed the whole world. A preview of the coming judgment at the end of time. Which will also be universal, and none will escape who have turned against God, so you have the fallen angels, you have the ancient world, and then finally, in verse six, he reminds them of the total destruction of fire by the of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, making them as he says, listen, an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. The depraved conduct of the false teachers that Peter was warning the believers about was comparable to the sexual Immorality and culture within the city of Sodom make it a perfect example for Peter to use for the people. In Genesis chapter 19, verse 24 and 28, we read, The Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah, resulting in dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a a furnace. The total destruction of the people and the buildings in that fiery judgment was the perfect comparison for Peter to use for the coming fiery judgment that heretics in Peter's day are saying is never going to happen but which they were doomed to experience themselves. And did you notice Peter's structure as he built his defense for the certainty of the coming judgment for the ungodly and the false teachers? Verse four, for if God did not spare angels, verse five, if he did not spare the ancient world, verse seven, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, verse nine, if this is so, If this is what God did in all these historical events, then the logical conclusion he makes in verse nine is, he will hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. These three historical events of divine judgment are proof of the coming condemnation and destruction of all false teachers and all of their followers. Brothers and sisters, it is a guaranteed event that will happen, don't be duped. So when false teachers come offering an alternative to the truth that sounds appealing with the hope that you will make a choice to follow, Peter wanted his readers to understand at the deepest level that they must not join them in their folly, for judgment will definitely come upon those who do so. So brothers and sisters, don't get discouraged when you see the wicked prospering. Pray for them. Pray for them. Don't judge them. Point out where they are contradicting Scripture, absolutely. Don't be quick to judge. Be quick to point out false teaching. But when was the last time you and I prayed for a false teacher that we know is operating in the world we live? Pray for them that God will be gracious and merciful and will help them to see the the folly of their thinking and the folly of their way. And save them just as he extended grace and mercy to you and I. Because their destruction is inevitable. Finally, he gives them a warning. He gives them a reminder. And he gives a promise regarding the godly. He says in verse 9, they will be rescued. Isn't that good news for you this morning and for me? The godly will be rescued. In two of the illustrations highlighting the destruction of the wicked that Peter has drawn their attention to, he also points their attentions to God's inevitable protection of the godly. Although he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly, he did protect, he kept, he guarded, he preserved Noah from harm and brought him and his family through the ordeal. Why? First of all, because God was gracious to Noah and his family. Genesis six verses eight and nine says, but God found favor in the eyes. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Do you hear that? Grace, undeserved favor. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The only reason he was kept, the only reason he was preserved and guarded was because God looked at him and showed favor towards Noah. Then it goes on to say, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Unlike the depraved conduct of the ungodly in Noah's life, Noah's life spoke of righteousness. Why? Because he recognized the authority of God in his life. It comes back to the authority issue. How do I know that? Genesis 6.22 says, Noah did everything just as God commanded Then in verse seven, as with Noah, Peter stresses the positive rescue of Lot, also called a righteous man. Although he had glaring weaknesses, Lot never turned against God. And it says of him, the lawless deeds he saw day and night in the city that he lived with, tormented him, deeply distressed his righteous soul. When was the last time the immorality and the depraved conduct of those in our community deeply distressed us. We're quick to judge. It should distress us, why? Because we know there's inevitable destruction coming for them. And it could have come for us too had God not been gracious and merciful and saved us. So because God is gracious, And Lot acknowledged God's authority. God sent two angels to Sodom to retrieve Lot and his his wife before judgment fell on Sodom. And so Peter makes a second logical conclusion. Just as he had regarding the coming judgment of the ungodly, which we just discussed, Peter makes the case that if God protected Noah and rescued Lot, verse 9, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Based on what we have seen of him in the past, we know he knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Who are the godly? People who show uncommon reverence and loyalty towards God, both in their doctrine and in their daily conduct. Because they're good? No. As a result of the grace and mercy shown them by God. As children of God, we understand that we may not he may not keep us from going through the difficulties of life, but that should never shake our confidence in the fact that he will bring us through the difficulties of life victoriously. Never forget in the midst of trials that ultimately he has already rescued us from the coming wrath. I love what it says in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 9 through 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 9 through 12. Listen to this good news. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Amen? Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. What a great scripture. So Peter here illustrates God's certain judgment and his certain compassion. His compassion, listen, will result in the rescue of all believers. Why? Because he is faithful and just. He will never forget even one of his children. If you are here this morning, or if you're watching online, or over at 301, if you are a child of God, by having placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone to save you from your sins, past, present and future, here's the good news, God's grace covers you. But his judgment will result in the punishment of all unbelievers. Just as God is faithful in his compassion toward believers who have been declared righteous by his grace, God will be faithful in his judgment toward unbelievers whose guilt remains on them because of their rejection of him and his gift of eternal life. Certain judgment, certain compassion. So how should we respond? If we are here this morning and by God's grace, you are a believer, you are a follower of Jesus Christ, covered with God's grace, here's how you respond to Peter's warning, to his reminder, and to his promise. Praise, prayer, and proclamation. Praise God for his grace and his mercy that he has shown to you. Praise God that he saved you through Jesus Christ. He took the just judgment that we deserved and placed it on his son so that we might be saved from wrath. Be a person of praise. Be a person of prayer. The next time we wanna judge someone, let's point out the truth that is not being presented correctly according to scripture, but pray for that individual. Pray that God will be merciful and gracious to them and save them. And then thirdly, be a person who proclaims the good news, the good news that there is salvation available through Jesus Christ. And if you were here this morning or watching online or over at 301, and you are not sure if you are a true disciple of Jesus Christ, perhaps you thought you were, but maybe you're realizing this morning through the preaching of God's word and through the Holy Spirit convicting you that perhaps I'm a counterfeit disciple. I don't really surrender fully to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And rather than living according to the Bible, I make the Bible accommodate to my lifestyle. If you're an unbeliever, if you have not surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, please, God is being so gracious to you this morning because he is allowing you to hear the good news. Please heed Peter's warning. Please heed Peter's reminder and receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior today. Jesus is the only way to escape the certain coming judgment and wrath of God. Now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Don't be duped. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word Thank you so much for carrying Peter along through the Holy Spirit to pen this letter to believers in Asia Minor that is still so relevant, so practical for our lives today. Oh God, I pray that we would heed his warning. I pray that we would be discerning. I pray that we would stick close to believers who follow your word and I pray that we will know your truth so well that we will be able to identify when we hear something that is contrary to your word. God, I pray that you'd help us to be people of prayer You've been very gracious and merciful to us, and God, I pray that you would help us to be gracious and merciful to others, and to proclaim the good news, because we know that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God about the message of Jesus Christ. And thank you for the hope and the confidence as a believer that we can leave today knowing that you know how to rescue us, and you have not destined us for wrath, you've saved us from wrath through Jesus Christ. So we praise you and thank you for that. And God, if there's anyone who has heard your word this morning that is an unbeliever, they're not sure if they are going to receive your compassion or your judgment. I pray that you would help them today to confess to you that they are a sinner and receive Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and follow you. So we pray for them, God, that you would do that. We love you. We thank you for this day. Thank you that you're with us as we leave now and help us to be great ambassadors for you. And through our life and through our doctrine, our doctrine, we will not bring any disrepute to your name. In Jesus' name I pray all these things, amen.